Welcome to this BTOG podcast. My name is Tom Newsham Davis. I am a medical oncologist at Chelsea Westminster Hospital um, and vice chair of BTOG. This is part of our regular podcast series entitled BTOG Does, where we have informal chats with experts in their field and tackle the most important questions we all face in the diagnosis and treatment of thoracic cancer. It is important to say that the sponsors of BTOG do not have any role whatsoever in the planning content or delivery of anything that is discussed. Today's podcast is BTOG Does Lung Cancer Surgery, and we're actually recording this in a room behind BTOG Summer 2022, which has been held at the Hammersmith. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Ms. Safina Begum, who is a consultant thoracic surgeon at the Royal Brompton Hospital. Safina, welcome to our very exciting podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So um, we're going to talk about surgery in general. Uh, This is our first subject of um, surgery in our podcast series. So let's start at the very beginning. Um, Tell me about um, what's the role of surgery in early stage non-small cell lung cancer and what do we know about the benefits of it? So early stage non-small cell lung cancer from a surgical point of view your aim would be to resect all of the um, all of the disease with a R0 margin and stage the mediastinum. Um, I think your resection needs to include both the lung and the lymph nodes. And I I think if you don't take the lymph nodes, you haven't done a complete resection. Um, I think that gives the patient the best chance of a cure. I think increasingly with evidence coming out, there may be other other treatment other treatments may enhance the benefits yeah. from surgery, but I do think surgery is still the mainstay of treatment for those patients who are fit for it. And one of the first things you said there was R0. So that mm-hmm. means a complete resection. That means when the micro, the pathologist looks down the microscope, they cannot see any cancer around yeah. the edge of what you've cut. What, why is R0 so important? You want to make sure you haven't left any microscopic disease behind. Okay. If you haven't got that margin, the question will, will remain, have you left disease behind? Does that patient either need further surgery to complete their treatment or need consolidation with radiotherapy if they are not fit, right. fit for a surgical procedure? My, If you had an R1 margin, for, for example, my, my first port of call would always be a further resection right. if the patient was fit for that procedure. If the patient is not fit for that procedure, then yes, I think a discussion regarding radiotherapy to consolidate your surgical resection is appropriate. So R1 is microscopic, mm-hmm. um, but when you're at surgery, you thought you got everything out. If you're in a situation where you've started the operation, you think, I'm not going to be able to get this out. This is going to be an R2 resection, so you can actually see there's cancer left over. Is that always an indication to stop? Um, do you then say, look, I can't do this, we're going to have to close, unfortunately, we have to think of other treatment options? Or are there situations where actually an R2 resection is, is, is an acceptable, albeit not an ideal situation? Okay, so the first thing when I when I'm assessing a patient, if they've got, a, if I think I'm not going to be able to resect all of the tissue, is have I got enough tissue for other studies, for the moleculars, for for the patient to have further treatment, okay? So I will check that status first. And if there isn't, I will take more tissue at that point. The second issue is, have they got a specific symptom related to their tumor that needs management? So for example, um, I had a patient not long ago who had hemoptysis due to an endobronchial lower lobe tumor, but intraoperatively had 
upper lobe tumor lats. Right. Okay. In that patient, we'd already tried to control uh, hemoptysis um, endobronchially, and that it was not an option. It was too, the disease was too far down. Um, patient did have a resection simply to control, to allow them to continue gotcha. their further treatment. Gotcha. Okay. But that's a very specific circumstance. Yeah. And I think you need to be careful that you're not harming your patient. If you realize that actually you're not going to be able to resect all of the disease and this is going to be an R2 margin, you then need to think, how can I get this patient out of hospital as quickly as possible and get them to an oncologist? Yeah. And nine times out of 10, that means don't take any lung. So R0 is our aim. You talked about lymph nodes. Mm -hmm. um, systematic lymph node dissection, take out everything that you can see. You can see. You're taking out the hyla nodes or taking out the mediastinal nodes. Um, is there a, a minimum number of nodes that our colleagues should be looking at to say, I wanna make sure these are taken out? Are there standards for this or do you just take out what you can see? No, absolutely, there are standards for this. So you want three lobe specific N2 and then three lobe specific N1 in your final pathological report. Now that might mean surgically you take your three N2 stations and you take two N1 stations and your pathologist gives you station 11, okay. station 12. So the agreement we have at the Brompton is we'll take out the three N2, we'll take out station 11 and station 10, and then station 12 will be the pathologist's time okay. And so just remind people about staging who aren't that familiar. N2 is mediastinal lymph nodes, yes. N1 are hyalur lymph nodes. And obviously what you're going to take out depends on which side the cancer has yeah. come and whether it's an upper, lower or, yeah. or middle node. Yep. Okay. So our, so we should be aiming for a minimum of six yes. stations. Uh, yes. And if you get more, then so, That's so a bonus. better. Okay. I think if you see other, other lymph nodes that are enlarged intraoperatively, yeah. you're obliged to take them. Yeah. You should be taking yeah. them. You shouldn't okay. be leaving those behind. Um, what about um, the difference? But we talked about the importance of R0 resection. Um, what about the difference between a pneumonectomy, a lobectomy, segmentectomy, mm -hmm. wedge resection? Um, lobectomy, in my inexpert opinion, is what tends to be done. Um, when one, when might one be using a wedge resection or segmentectomy instead of a lobectomy? So I think we'll deal with the easy one first, wedge. So wedge resection really is not the procedure of choice. Right. This should only be done in a patient who is not fit for an anatomical lung resection. Okay. Not be fit because of lung function. Yes, because okay. of lung function, it doesn't permit you to do yeah. an anatomical resection. Okay. And it's not in, anatomically, it's, not, it's placed in such a way that a, a segmental resection is not possible. Okay. And so then just to clarify, a set wedge is you'll literally take out that little bit of lung. Yes. Not based on any anatomical relationship. No. And then that's it. You're not taking lymph nodes, presumably? No. Yes, you are. You are. Okay. You are. There is nothing that, look, because there's nothing that precludes you taking lymph nodes. Okay. Because you're not removing more lung. No. You're just rummaging around no. the back. <laughs> no, I, so this is it. it. No, but this is it. Yeah. I think if you if you've done a lymph if you've done a wedge resection on the basis of um, on the basis of the patient does not have enough lung function for an anatomical resection, you should still take the lymph nodes because you're income you've done incomplete staging. Yeah. Okay. Because this is part of your surgical procedure. Yeah. Okay. So wedge is only if you have to because and you go into it knowing that's what you're going to do because yes. the lung is poor 
segmentectomy sounds like that's more anatomical, but you're still not taking a whole load. You're not. So increasingly, we're kind of going towards segmental resection, especially given the uh, randomized control trial, phase three trial published April this year, Japanese study, 1,100 patients, randomized um, to lobectomy versus segmentectomy okay. as a non-inferiority trial, segmentectomy for small peripheral um, less than two centimeter lung cancers was found to be non-inferior and superior to lobectomy in terms of survival, in terms of survival and all So less than two centimeters. Less than two peripheral. centimeter peripheral. And ir- ir- regardless of lobe or side? Regardless of lobe and side. Um, it's interesting. It's very interesting data from our point of view. Obviously, with the advent of lung cancer screening, yeah. these are, yeah. this is increasingly becoming our workload. And what we found is in the segmentectomy arm, yes, the air leak is, the air leak duration is longer, but that is, okay. that's a given. You've, you've and explain to me why that is, but because you're you're cutting into lung into lung rather than just dividing up fissures. Yeah. yeah. Um, but because you've preserved um, lung parenchyma, the lung function at one year is is better. Right. Interesting. Okay. So that's segmentectomy. Lobectomy is our, our standard. Yes. Pneumonectomy done much less. I mean, you don't have to be a surgeon to appreciate that if you're missing a lung, that's not good. Is it? Presumably a left pneumonectomy is less bad than a right pneumonectomy. Yes. So for a left pneumonectomy, the, the mortality you'd quote is 46%. For a right pneumonectomy, you'd quote 10%. Well, so okay. you're not doing that unless... You want to be sure your patient is fit. Right. And with those patients, I, I mean, you need to, they need to have had lung functions, echocardiogram. You need to make sure there's no evidence of any right, right heart strain, PA raised PA pressures because it's that's a whole procedure in okay. itself. And so you're only doing that because you have no other surgical alternative. Yes. And really, if you're if it's going to be a pneumonectomy, presumably that MDT discussion we should be saying, are we sure we should be doing this? Yes. Is there not a chemo rad option? Is there not I, a neoadjuvant treatment that might mitigate I think that? if you're going to do a pneumonectomy, um, it's sorry, it's absolutely not. Um, I wouldn't shy away from it in a patient who is fit. Right. Okay. Yeah, we, we have a patient between us yeah. who's, had who's done brilliantly. Yeah, left absolutely. I, I think you shouldn't shy away from it if that is the patient's best search, best treatment option. Okay. But what you should do is make sure you've completely staged that patient. Got you. Okay. And in those patients, for my threshold for doing a mediastinoscopy is very low. Right. Because I want to make sure they are truly lymph node negative. So this is mediastinoscopy you would do before the operation yes. to fully stage the mediastinum, even though they've had an EBUS, you're doing that, for example, because you want to make doubly sure. Yes, that, if that the is... lymph nodes were avid on the PET, yeah. if, if, if they don't have any avid lymph node stations yeah. on the PET and they've had an EBUS, it's negative, I'm happy to take that. If they've had, if the lymph node stations are avid on PET, yes. then I even if the EBUS was negative, I would do a med. Okay. So we touched upon about in that conversation about being fit for surgery. Yes. Um, respiratory function. We know everyone should have lung function tests yes. before. We tend to focus on the FEV1. We tend to focus on the TLCO. But there's also um, mention in national guidelines and local guidelines about CPEX testing. Yes. Um, sometimes people do that formally. Sometimes people walk some up and down the stairs. When do you do formal testing? Should everyone have it? Um, and um, what are the what are the 
situations where you say this this surgery is not going to be possible because of cardiac or respiratory function? Um, so with a lobect, if I'm considering anything other than a pneumonectomy, my, I will tend to walk them up and down the stairs or I will tend to shuttle walk them. Okay. Okay, with a pulse oximeter. And shuttle walk is how far? 25 metres. Okay. 25 metres, 25 metre shuttles and they have to get to 140 at least. Metres in total? Oh, in, in six minutes. And you're watching just that they can do it or does it have to, do you look at the drop in sats or? So I'll measure sats and heart rate. Okay. And I'll look at how many times they've stopped. Okay. And I'll look at what their recovery time is and what they desaturated to. And is that as good as other forms of card cardiopulmonary, you can't say it? Form Car of cardiopulmonary, yeah. test. And shuttle test is as good or? Those numbers in view of the lungs I'm seeing on the CT scan and the target lobe. So I'm looking at, um, so we also do lung volume reduction surgery. So if I'm looking at a patient and they've got, for example, heterogeneous emphysema, upper lobe um, LVRS target, and they've got an upper lobe cancer, my, the numbers I'm looking at and accepting are very different to what I would accept in somebody with kind of no emphysema. So for example, if an FEV1 of 21% of wouldn't worry me in somebody who had emphysema because Bless I'm going to take out their okay. emphysematous lung, and actually they should be less short to breath yes. after my procedure. Because you've done LVRS. Because I've done LVRS. So, the, so the, key, the message, I guess, to our audience is, Yes, always look at lung function, but taking context of the patient yes. and what's going on and what you're proposing. Yes. Okay. That, so that's... how much lung function are they going to lose? What's their IV? Are you going to give them a lung volume reduction effect? If you are, carry yeah. on. Okay. Um, next question. Lots of questions. Um, when do we need a biopsy before surgery? can be very difficult. Um, I appreciate ideally everyone would have a biopsy, but it's not always possible. What, what's your view? uh absolutely need a biopsy before a pneumonectomy yeah for sure okay um because the risk yeah. is so high um before a lobectomy it's if it's a small if it's a peripheral lesion that i can wedge easily and do a frozen section on before i do a former before i continue with my anatomical resection i don't need histology Okay. That's not going to add much to my no. procedure. I'm going to be dissecting out the hilum while I wait for my frozen section result. So that's not a problem. And just to explain to people, frozen section is you're in there, you've opened the chest, he said in his great, his great surgical knowledge, then you are taking a sample which is frozen on site, pathologist then comes to you and has a quick look and says to you, cancer or not cancer? Yes. We don't have any immunos, but at least you know. Yeah. And then if it is cancer, then you have the... Um, go ahead so to speak to then complete your lobectomy or yes. whatever you might be doing okay so um we've talked a lot about non-small cell lung cancer mm -hmm. what about small cell lung cancer now obviously most people i see with small cell lung cancer have metastatic disease because it's a very aggressive tumor but people do have early stage small cell is there a role for surgery what evidence do we have when can we and when shouldn't we be doing surgery Okay, so the evidence we have isn't randomized control data at all. It's the the best data we have is from the SEER database, SEER analysis. Okay. So they looked at 14,000 plus patients with small cell lung cancer, and they looked at survival for early stage, um, early patients who had had surgery and those who hadn't had surgery. And at five years, surgery, patients who had undergone surgery and chemotherapy versus those patients who'd had no surgery for early stage 
So this is the T1, yes. T, T1, T2, N0 cohort. No nodal involvement, no small nodal tumors. Involvement. These patients had a 50% five-year survival okay. versus less than versus 5% in those who had no surgery, just had chemotherapy. So that's a no-brainer. Yes. That is a, if you have an early stage small cancer, you haven't got it, node negative, phone your surgeon. But the other thing this um, this analysis looked at was upstaging. Okay. okay, and they found that 20 percent of these patients had upstaging of their um, of their cl clinical stage, right? Um, pathologically, yeah. okay. So, what I would say that if you're contemplating um, surgical surgical intervention for patients with early stage small cell lung cancer, you must invasively stage yes. the metastasis. Yeah, absolutely. So that's yeah. an EBUS or a MED, depending yeah. on what your preference is. And from a medog point of view, I would also say to people that if you do happen to have done surgery, adjuvant chemotherapy is going to be needed. Um, not as much evidence as there is in non-small cell, but I, yeah, this is an aggressive tumour. Yes, and I think those patients, these are patients that you should see together in clinic yep. if you're contemplating surgical resection. And you must make sure that your oncology colleague is absolutely happy to give chemotherapy yeah. to that patient. Yeah, that's a very good point. And because if there is something, if there is for whatever reason this patient is not able to have chemotherapy, do not intervene yeah. surgically. There's just so back, I guess, more to non-small cell lung cancer. Um, my colleagues in clinical oncology have lots of fancy toys. Mm -hmm. They have stereotactic radiotherapy. They have say they have all sorts of things with names like gamma knife and cyber knife. Uh, not real knives, but that's what they think they are. Um, are you going to be usurped by the, by, by these guys? Um, when where does where does stereotactic radiotherapy have a role where surgery doesn't? What where, where would you see? There that? are. I don't. I don't see it as a competition. No. It's a. There are certain patients for whom. Uh, surgery is appropriate, certain patients for whom stereotactic radiotherapy is appropriate, and certain patients actually either is appropriate, it depends on what the patient yes. would like. Um, I think there are certain patients, patients with fibrosis, for whom a radiotherapy option is unrealistic. Yes. Okay. Um, and those patients wouldn't be my, my radiotherapy. Radi ah. Clinical radiology colleagues would not be happy to see yeah. those patients, whereas there are also similarly there are surg there are patients who we are not happy to operate on, especially if they've got an FEV1, which is less than twenty percent, okay. and you're or or a patient who's got emphysema and the tumor is in your non-target lobe. That yes. doesn't help you. Yeah. You're not going to want to yeah. remove healthy lung. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 very much working together to identify those patients where yeah. stereotactic therapy is going to be an option when surgery wasn't possible. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, last thing I want to go on to is about, about you. Um, so tell me how you ended up, your consultant the Brompton, Royal Brompton, uh, very impressive. Um, how do you end up uh, in your career path? What led you to the doors of the Brompton? So I graduated from Leicester. 2004 then I went on to complete my foundation training in Birmingham and I kind of decided already that I was going to pursue a career in surgery hadn't decided quite what type of surgery but I really enjoyed vascular surgery at the time and so I'd applied for a basic surgical training rotation in those days shows you how old I am um, and it was about a year through that when the modernizing medical careers came in and that just 
kind of changed careers a bit. I applied for core surgical training in Leicester, and the plan was I would be doing a year of um, whatever I was given, and then a year of vascular. And actually, I did six months of cardiac surgery, and I did six months of thoracic surgery. Right. And um, I really enjoyed that. That six months of thoracic surgery just and, and, completely changed. And me. you're suggesting in that, and as conversation we had a little bit before we started recording, that there's been a change in in thoracic surgery because yes. in the old days, so to speak, you'd be a cardiothoracic surgeon. Absolutely. In the very old days, you'd just be a surgeon. Then you were cardiothoracic, but now there is a dedicated specialty which is thoracic Thrac surgery. Yes, and in those days, thoracic surgery was as a specialty was very much in its infancy. Yeah. This whole idea of being a pure thoracic surgeon, the majority of the of units in the UK at that point did not have right. a pure thoracic surgeon yeah. in place. And this has only been, I think it's the last five, 10 years that's okay. changed, that situation okay. has changed, okay. where surgeons, where units have had to appoint yeah. thoracic specific surgeons. And now if you're appointed as a consultant cardiothoracic surgeon, you will either be cardiac or thoracic. Yeah. To the point that even in training, they will have to declare, mm. trainees will have to declare either cardiac or, or thoracic fairly early on. And then their training will be kind of guided by their chosen specialty. Um, can't help noticing you're a woman. Yes. Um, I'm lucky enough to work in both my uh, MDTs, both of our thoracic surgeons are women, which I think is fabulous. But you are in a minority still in thoracic surgery. Um, what was that like going through training and how do you see the future of women in thoracic surgery? I mean, clearly the future must be bright because the numbers are increasing and, and things are changing hugely. When I was first appointed um, as a NTN, there were very few uh, female cardiothoracic Because female people thoracic put off because it wasn't... Yes, because at that point the specialty wasn't separated and um, I, I'll be honest with you, I really didn't enjoy cardiac surgery. This was not a specialty I wanted to do at all. Um, I found the physiology interesting. I found the anatomy interesting. I didn't find the operating yeah. interesting. Whereas with thoracic surgery, I found all of it interesting. Yeah. And the kind of the whole approach appeals to me. Whereas I, I don't think prior to doing that six month in thoracic surgery, I'd even considered this as no. a specialty because it wasn't, and simply wasn't a specialty in those days. And I think people are now increasing awareness of this as a specialty and people are seeing role models and they're wanting yeah. to come along, spend time. I'd also recommend that if you're going to do thoracic surgery, if you're appointed to an NTN number, go and speak to your TPD beforehand. Yeah. Okay plan your time and training Yeah, because what you want is you want to come out of training as a competitive surgeon. You do not be, want to be somebody who's just about struggling to do the basics. Yeah. So you want to come out with good numbers. You want to come out being able. So in my day, um, it is your I was, day. yeah, <laughs> when you were training, you, that's procedures were just kind of on the up. And if you, had if you had exited training at that point and were able to do an open resection but weren't able to do a VATS resection, you would have just about been okay. Right. Okay. But in this day and age, you would not be okay. Yeah. 
you would have to have significant procedure numbers in terms of minimally yeah. invasive procedures. And I think you'd need, for when I was exit, when I was kind of, when I first started training, I went to see my TPD and I was like, right, I'm going to do the bare, bare minimum cardiac surgery. And then I would like to spend my, spend my time like this, please. Yeah. And I knew that may, being able to do a VATS procedure was going to make me very competitive. So I wanted to make sure that the number of procedures I'd done VATS and open were about the same. And I was in a very fortunate position that actually I was able to pick that up in my train, within my training program rather than having to go yeah. out of program to, to, to achieve this. And at the time there were lots uh, there were a lot of VATS fellowships and you could have gone out of deanery, done these one of these programs, and you probably would have picked up 30, 40 resections in that year. At the time, I did discussed it with my TPD, and um, that didn't make sense because I was doing 100 plus resections per year. So be 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 a competitive surgeon. I like the idea of a non-competitive surgeon. I've never met one. Um, no, but, you know. so it is the, I mean, it's you want to be sure that when you when a unit is considering appointing you, you have the skill set yeah. they are they are looking for. But also, I think in thoracic surgery, you you really do need to get on with your MDT. I agree. If if you're if you're thinking you're just going to sit there and decide yeah. what treatment's going to be, that's just yeah, absolutely. And I and I think thing I've learned just to, just to wrap up. I, I think the thing I've learned is that when it comes to surgery, in in fact all of the thoracic oncology, it is very much MDT, and, yeah. and no one works alone. No. Um, so that brings us to the end. Um, Svina, thank you very much for joining us. I, I have learned as ever a huge amount. Um, thank you to the audience for listening. Uh, you can hear more podcasts uh, on uh, the uh, site where you download them from. We are making changes to podcasts in the next uh, month or two uh, with two uh, presenters in the future. Uh, Dr. Leanne Castle is going to be joining me. She's a, a consultant respiratory physician extraordinaire. So keep tuned uh, and thank you for joining us today.